all you have. You are now tuned in to Parker Swayze, who just sat back and I'm ready to play. Let me take your thoughts far, far away. Now let's hear what Darvetta has to say. We would be honored if you would join us. So I'm a little bit sick, guys, so just bear with me, and I'm going to try to push through this the best that I can. And we're going to start right where we left off with Chapter 3, and in this chapter, we learn some awesome stuff about the Jedi of this time period and some of the other races of this time, which gives us an insight into how some of the other characters acted towards the Jedi. So let me stop babbling. Let's just get to the story. Not every journey will complete their great journey. Some will fall victim to Typhon's many dangerous landscapes or creatures. Some will lose themselves. Some may even lose their way in the Force and leave Typhon far behind, scattering out to the system, lost in a much more fundamental way. But as Jedi, we must accept this, because this is not an existence of absolutes. Life is a challenge, and facing that challenge is what makes the good great. Master Dila Jan Marola, 3533 TYA, Thoyor Arrival. Even though she had been away from home for four years, Lannery still kept to Typhon time. She was used to it. It suited her natural sleep patterns, and she saw little point in adapting her ship to standard time. In her less guarded moments, she might also admit that it reminded her of home. The computer calculated the optimum flight path from Typhon to Calamar for the time of year and current planet alignments. And before committing to the route, Lannery also calculated it manually. The computer was never wrong in such matters. The navigational elements were programmed and designed by the Jedi's most experienced space travelers. But she was always pleased when her calculations came out the same. Rather than questioning the computer, she was testing herself. Pushing her peacemaker to its limits, it took a little over seven days to reach Calamar. She used this time to meditate, prepare herself for the coming mission, exercise, and review every aspect of the information downloaded to the peacemaker's computers. There wasn't much. Whatever contacts had informed the Jedi of Dale's scheme had not been very thorough. Rumors, speculation, and a few hazy images. But even in those grainy images of covert meetings and mysterious exchanges, she recognized the face of her brother. He looked older, of course, but she was surprised at how much older, as if he'd lived three lifetimes since she had last seen him, not nine years. He was taller, thinner, his child's sadness translated into adult bitterness. His dusky skin had turned darker and more rugged, and there was something haunting about his blurred visage. Lannery berated herself for letting her thoughts of his death cloud how she viewed him now. Yet the idea remained. Seeing those images of Dale felt like looking at a ghost. We'll meet again, she said to the screen, and I'll ask why you let me think you were dead all these years. For the first few days of the journey, she left Dale's image on the cockpit flat screen, also feeding it through to a screen in the living quarters directly behind the cockpit. A reminder of who she sought and who she had lost. But seeing him there only confused her more, so by day five she left the screen blank. Lannery had visited Calamar twice over the past four years. The first time was to act as mediator in a troublesome deal between three landmass developers, all of them bickering over an island called Hang Laden in the planet's vast southern ocean. Normally, a Jedi would not have been concerned with such matters, but the Jedi Council had sent Lannery because of the island's suspected archaeological importance. Though the island appeared bare, it was believed that an ancient structure, possibly of Gree origin, existed a kilometer beneath the surface. 
Her presence had been resented, but she had taken an active role in the negotiations, ensuring that each of the three interested parties had a portion of land to develop. More important, she had covertly protected the cave network that might lead deep down to that ruin from ancient history. The force illusions she had left behind of rock falls and impassable ravines would last for a hundred years. Her second time on Calamar had been less peaceful. That time, her sword had been wetted with blood. Even so, she did not pretend for a moment that she knew this place. A good Jedi was always on guard and ready for surprises, especially a Jedi on a mission as important as hers. As she entered the atmosphere and her computer contacted air traffic control, she saw two Calamar defense ships shadowing her 30 kilometers away. They would be no threat. It was more likely that the pilots were excited at spotting a peacemaker, and they'd go home that night to tell their families and friends that they'd seen a Jedi arrive. They followed for the next hour, and just before peeling away, they made contact. She replied with a gentle push of grace and humor, responding to them while revealing nothing. If we met in a tavern, we might even be friends, she thought, smiling. It was a subtle Jedi talent, but one that often served her well. They disappeared from her screen when she was more than a hundred kilometers from her destination. She approached Rahul Yawn above a startling azure sea. The peacemaker shuddered as she passed across the waves. She was so low that spray from the sea misted the windows, but she enjoyed flying like this. Out in space, there was no context. She could fly for days with the starscape changing hardly at all. Depth was infinite, and distances were so vast that her mind could barely grasp them. But down here, she was close to something. Sometimes closeness mattered. Rahul Yawn had been built on an archipelago stretching out into the southern ocean. There were five large islands and countless smaller ones, all of them developed, and hundreds of bridges, both large and small, spanned the spaces between landmasses. Gleaming white spires reached stark fingers to the sky, and several classes of cloud chaser airships drifted between them like lazy birds flocking around actries back on Tython. Lower down, buildings and streets clung to the islands, and sometimes protruded out over the ocean on slender stilts, and beautifully wrought bridges stood in isolation over the waterways. Ships dotted the ocean, and the inner waterways were busy with smaller watercraft. The white metal spires pulsed here and there with colored lights, illuminated even during daytime to identify an island, a building, or a street. It was an attractive city, and most of its money came from tourism. People traveled from all over Calamar to holiday on Rahul Yawn, and with tourists came the vultures and parasites who preyed on them. She was directed to a landing platform on a high tower on one of the outer islands. There were scores of gracefully wrought landing pads and bays around the tower, and exterior elevators whisked. People traveled from all over Calamar to holiday on Rahul Yawn, and with tourists came the vultures and parasites who preyed on them. She was directed to a landing platform on a high tower on one of the outer islands. There were scores of gracefully wrought landing pads and bays around the tower, and exterior elevators whisked up and down its uneven sides. Even the city's air and spaceport was beautiful. As the peacemaker settled, Lannery prepared herself for what was to come. Her mission started here. Keep an eye on the ship, she said to the droid. It grumbled and clicked. Yes, I'll have my comlink. She felt the sliver of tech in her lapel just to make sure. Then she stood within the cabin and smoothed down her clothing, checking that her sword was strapped correctly to her thigh, ran fingers through her hair. She used her metal Jedi star to fix her cape around her neck. For now, there was no need to hide. She was surprised to realize that she was nervous. Somewhere at the end of this mission, her brother waited. 
We love bringing you more Star Wars, and it is because of our partners that we can do this week after week. So we invite you to be one of those partners. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us keep this going. Your support will give us the ability to create future episodes, as well as provide you with the best sounding show on your playlist. And to express our appreciation, we will give you a shout out on our mid-series show that we do in the middle of every book. You will also be automatically entered in all future giveaways. All you have to do is go to the show notes and click that listener support link. Now let's get back to the show. Like any visitor who had landed on one of the spacecraft platforms, Lannery was directed through to a large room with lines of interview pods. One entire side was a window, offering staggering views across Rahul Yawn and the glimmering sea beyond. And the opposite wall was splayed with extravagant artwork that labeled it the Welcome Hall. But its real purpose was obvious. Calamar's security services were efficient and discreet, and even a Jedi was not simply waved through. She respected that. And by the time she was ushered from her interview pod, the three officers inside also respected her privacy. A subtle push, a gentle word. Perhaps in a few days' time, they might start to question their decisions to let her in so lightly, although by then she would be long gone. But by the time she had traveled on three elevators down through the tower to ground level, Lannery began to suspect that she was being followed. She paused in the vast lobby of the port tower, bought a drink from a vendor droid, and melted into the shadows beneath a wide, low tree. There were tables and chairs there, and a massively fat Zabrak woman was harvesting large insects from the tree's lower canopy, flash-frying them and selling them to eager customers. Lannery decided she was not hungry. As she drank, she watched the bank of elevators she had just left. Her sense of being followed was strong, but though she waited for a while, none of those exiting the elevators seemed to be looking for her. Strange. She was certain it was not one of the customs officers. Lady, you're a fine one, a voice said. A tall, robed figure had approached, and she was annoyed with herself for not noticing. I'm drinking, she said. So drink with me. No thanks. Come on, ranger. You're young. I'm almost 200 years old. Got experience. Got three bottles of Che wine in my rooms, almost as old as me, just waiting for a special occasion. She rested her hand on her sword's haft. The force was calm and settled, and the weapon was part of her. Would losing your life constitute a special occasion? He stared at her from beneath his hood, amused, uncertain. Then he waved a hand and turned to leave. Ah, Jedi, so tightly wound. She finished her drink, then moved out across the lobby area. There were hundreds of people there, a varied mix of the many species who had spread out from Tython to colonize the system. Humans and Wookiees mingled with Twi'leks, with their prominent headtails, and red-skinned Sith. Near-human Zabrak, with their vestigial horns, walked alongside Iktochi, whose heavy horns gave them a fearsome appearance. Calamar had been the first planet settled after Tython and its moons, and it remained the most racially mixed and diverse. It was proud of its diversity, and it was a pride well-earned. Even on Tython, it was rare that so many species were seen in one place at any one time, and Lannery paused for a moment in the center of the lobby to feel the ebb and flow of so many people in transit. She paused also to try to spot any pursuer. Still nothing. She'd seen no one obviously stop when she had. And although some people looked at her as they passed by, she sensed that it was only out of interest when they recognized the Jedi Star. And on occasion, perhaps even distaste. She knew well enough that some Calamar thought themselves above the Jedi. I'm alone too often and for too long, she thought. Perhaps a subtle paranoia was a natural part of being among so many people once more. Leaving the Spire's lobby, 
she passed a group of Daibendu monks chanting one of their strange, haunting ululations. A small group of travelers had settled around them, and some were swaying slowly in time with the song. Just outside the main doors, down a wide, long ramp that led to street level, a circle of feline Cathars was meditating upon an image of their god painted on the ground. The image was beautifully wrought, and their meditations had drawn several smoke snakes up from the ground to dance in a slow, hypnotic pattern. Lannery had heard of the Cathars' smoke snakes, but never seen them. Such diverse beliefs being celebrated in such close proximity. Her immersion in the Force meant that she believed neither, but it was still pleasing to see such inclusivity. The streets outside were bustling with people, trade stalls, performance artists, religious groups, speakers, security officers, and children and adults alike pointing and chattering in delight at their surroundings. She felt almost unnoticed, and she welcomed that. But she also knew that it was an ideal environment in which to be followed, and that feeling persisted. Though she cast her force sense around, there were so many people that her thoughts were confused. She would have to remain alert. Cloud chasers floated above, and occasionally drop ships came down to pick up passengers. But Lannery had studied maps on her ship and knew that the tavern she sought was close by. She chose to walk. Bet you've never seen one like me, eh? Eh? Trisana grinned at her over his glass of wine. His yellow eyes and blazing red skin gave him a fearsome appearance, but she perceived a gentle intelligence behind the startling exterior. Your coloring is quite rare, Lannery said. Rarer still for a Twi'lek, the extra Leku. Rarer? Oh, yeah, rarer indeed. He stroked the third head tail that grew behind the usual two. At least you use the right terminology. You wouldn't believe what some people call these things. I probably would. They call me Freak. He growled suddenly and leaned forward, bearing teeth that seemed to have been filed down to points. A scary Freak. You don't scare me, she said. Hmm. Trees Leku. Those three long, curious tentacles growing from the back of his skull twitched a little, one tip stroking over his left shoulder, the other two pointing like fingers tapping at the air. Yeah, well, this bitch is a Jedi, Lannery translated. Tree's eyes opened wide. You know Twi'leki? Of course. That surprises you? Huh. Huh. Nothing about the Jedi can surprise me. Oh, don't be so sure. Lannery took a drink and looked around Susco's tavern. With more than 15 settled planets and moons, and spread over 16 billion kilometers, there were places like this all across the Titan system. Places where people gathered to drink, eat, and talk, no matter what their color, species, creed, or breed. Where music played in the background, either a local tune or perhaps something more exotic from another continent or another world. Where travelers found common ground, and those who chose not to travel could hear outlandish tales of faraway places. And it was in these taverns that tongues could be loosened, news spread, and secrets overheard. Lannery loved places like this, because often after a drink or two, she could have been anywhere. The drink she was sipping now had been recommended by Tree, a local wine made from deep sea grapes and fortified with swing dust from some of the air mines at Calamar's North Pole. It was incredibly strong, but she used a gentle force flow to make sure the potent drink did not impede her senses. She might enjoy such taverns, but she had been attacked in places like these, and she had also killed in them. Master Dan Powell vouches for you, Lannery said. Trisana's eyes glimmered with humor. Oh, I doubt that. Well, she says to watch you, and that I should kill you the first moment you display any hint of betrayal. Lannery looked around the tavern, but probed for Tree's reaction. Strange. 
She felt nothing. She turned back to him and said, But Dan Powell assures me you don't have a traitorous bone in your body. Tree raised his brows, and his leku, resting now over his shoulders, performed a gentle, almost sensuous touch along their tips. Good, Lannery said, smiling. Then let's take a meal, and at the same time share some information. The sea beef is very good here, Tree said. He raised a hand and caught the attention of the barman. A wave and a click of his fingers, and the barman nodded back, grinning. Lannery probed outward and touched the barman's mind. She took a startled breath. She could never really prepare for experiencing another's thoughts, as the first rush was always overwhelming. But she quickly filtered out the random, the violent, the sick and disgusting, and narrowed to what she sought. Tree so cool, so calm, so red, sitting there with her. Bet you die, and he'd be lucky. She'd eat him alive. She broke away and stared at Tree until he averted his yellow eyes. But she said nothing. She knew she was attractive, and if he was thinking of her that way, there was no real harm. I'll be very open with you, Lannery said. Very honest. That's a good way to begin for both of us. There's something about you I can't read, but I don't need the force to understand people. You're haughty and superior. Maybe that's just you, but right now I think it's because you think you have me at a disadvantage. Perhaps because Dan Powell has told you most, if not all, of what I know and why I'm here. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Tree blinked softly, his leku touching in gentle acknowledgement. And so you know whom I seek. You'll know that he's my brother. I have rumors and stories told in taverns, second-hand information from sources I can't verify and don't trust. And the sum of all the information I have gives me virtually nothing to go on. I don't even know what planet he's on right now. You can't, uh... He waved his fingers, raised his arms up and down. Force his location? Lannery glared at Tree. His childish display did not warrant a response. Master Dan Powell sent me to you and said you might be able to help. I hope so, because I don't know how much more of this piss I can take. Lannery emptied her glass in one swallow. And now I'll be very open with you, too, Tree said, suddenly serious. Along with talk of your brother, I hear rumors of Gree technology. Lannery inclined her head, raised an eyebrow. I don't mean the Hypergate. Anyone with half a mind knows of the theories about the old city being of Gree origin. Tree leaned in closer, glancing around. I mean, what drives the Hypergate? I don't understand, she said. But already she was thinking of what the Masters had told her back on Tython. Dark matter. I mean, there are whispers of design plans, tech details. Tree shrugged. Blueprints. And all Gree. Lannery leaned back in shock. Gree? Really? So little was known about that ancient people. There were theories that the Gree had once inhabited the old city on Tython, but theorists were split as to whether the Gree had built it themselves. Though the Gree were long gone from the galaxy, it was suggested by some that the old city was even more ancient. Lannery had met a man on Tython, not a Jedi, but someone allied to them in Outlook, who had spent his life researching the Gree and their legacy, and even what he knew could be relayed in little more than an hour of talk. And now, 
this mysterious Twilik, who, if what Dan Powell had told her was true, undertook criminal activities, was claiming that Dale had found something the Gree had left behind. Blueprints? She asked. Only what I've heard. More wine? Lannery bristled. He was toying with her, playing a Jedi Ranger as he would a weak-minded, petty criminal looking to muscle in on some nefarious deal. She leaned back in her chair and feigned tiredness, but behind her drooping eyelids she felt the force flow, stirring her senses, boosting them, and she probed outward once again to touch Tree's mind. But he was close to her. Tree's eyes went wide, and for a moment he looked unaccountably sad, shoulders dropping and Leku slumping down exhausted. He looks like a battered pet, Lannery thought. She wasn't sure where the image came from, but she had grown to trust her first impressions. The force resided in her subconscious, too, and sometimes it spoke. He would not meet her gaze, staring instead into his half-empty glass. She sensed around the fringes of his mind but could not get in, and it was something she was not used to. Some species were very hard to read. The Cathar's minds worked in a very different way, thinking in symbols and abstracts rather than words and images. But usually, she could at least touch another's mind, whether human or alien. Trees had a wall. It seemed to encircle his consciousness, and her efforts rebounded from it, almost hinting that there was no mind at all. Yet she knew that was not the case. Tree was very much his own person, intelligent and alert, harboring desires and aims, and she could see that he knew himself well. Very well. Tree, what's been done to you? She asked, because she sensed that he wanted to talk. The feeling was nothing to do with the Force. It was merely the empathy of one sentient being for another. Just another slave spy used by the Jedi. You're altered, she said, realizing the startling truth. Genetic? Deep and permanent. No Jedi would do that, she said. Ha! Tree spat. A few people nearby glanced around at his outburst, and he stared them down, red and ferocious when he wanted to be. They went back to their drinks. But it's... Lannery said, but she did not finish her sentence. Forbidden, she was going to say. But she had that ongoing alchemy experiment on her ship, and she knew that some Jedi would frown on that. What was considered forbidden to some was exploration to others. I'm Dan Powell's toy, Tresana said, quieter now. There are promises made to me. He sat up straighter, proud, and they'll be kept. Money, a new identity, and a state on a Skalgoran city ship. He nodded firmly, but his leku writhed, displaying uncertainty and vulnerability. Lannery wasn't sure what to make of him, and the fact that he was closed to her gentle probings unsettled her. But she could also not help admiring Dan Powell's work. Whatever subtle genetic adaptations she had performed, whatever strange alchemies kept Tree's mind purely his own, but made him very obviously hers, were perhaps immoral, yet startlingly brilliant. And you'll get all that, Lannery said. Master Dan Powell is a Jedi of her word. Their food arrived. Tree started eating immediately, chewing and swallowing with barely a pause. He seemed ravenous. The Gree, Lannery asked. The blueprints. I need to know more. And now you're here, we can know more, Tree said, spitting half-chewed meat across the table. Some of it landed on Lannery's plate. When? I need to find someone, he said. Someone who's not easy to find, but on my own. A ranger will attract attention. You know the saying, when a ranger comes calling, trouble quickly follows. Well, so they hear of you with me and they'll melt away, maybe for a long time. So leave it to me. Meet me here at dusk. I'll know where they are by then. 
Who is this person? A rich calamar, a dealer in swing dust and other air spices, and a stargazer. That word again, Lannery said. Tree wiped his mouth and took a drink. Not one that many know. Don't use it too freely. He nodded down at Lannery's plate. You going to eat that? No, help yourself. Tree pulled her plate across to him and started eating. It was as if every bite was his first. So, here, at dusk, Lannery said. Hmm. He nodded without looking up from the food. He exuded indifference, yet he had called himself a slave. A conflicted character. Complex. Troubled. Exactly who she would not want guiding her during her investigations. Fine, she said. As she stood to leave, she saw faces turning away from her, and she walked to the doorway in a bubble of silence broken only by awed whispers of Ranger and Jedi, and darker mutterings of Trouble. She hoped the old saying Tree had reminded her of could be put to rest on Calamar. But hope alters nothing. And soon after leaving Susco's tavern, Lannery knew that she was being followed again. So there's a couple things that I wanted to point out right here. First is that Landry, you said that she put up a force illusion that lasted a hundred years, which shows the power of the ancient Jedi. There was also Twi'lek people in this story. If you're not familiar with who the Twi'lek people are, think back to Return of the Jedi. When they're in Jabba's palace, that humanoid person that had the long tentacles coming out of his head, the translator guy, he was a Twi'lek. And the reason that I bring this up is to point out how long the Twi'lek people have been around the Jedi. And to point out something that I thought that was important. Most Twi'leks had two head tails that came out, one on each side. But Tree has three of them. Another thing that I found interesting, it says that he had alterations done by Jedi Masters that kept other Jedis from looking into his mind. And from what was described, that's something that was frowned upon by the Jedi of that time. And when Landry talks about the people that were in the crowd during the whole little scenario that happened, she says that there were Wookiee and Sith in the crowd. Another time that the race of the Sith is pointed out. And I don't know what this is leading up to, but hopefully it's something really exciting. So just a few things that I noticed that I wanted to point out to you guys. So let's get back to the story. The first day is always the worst, the human Master Turkey says as he leads Lannery and Dale toward the surface. The silent desert can be an unsettling place. We know, Lannery thought. We know for sure. They climb up through the vast cavern. It's more like a city than a temple, Lannery thinks, and Turkey glances back at her. Listen when I'm talking or you'll learn nothing, he speaks in her mind. He's not angry, more amused, if anything. Her surprise at how easily he silently communicates is obviously evident in her expression. Forced telepathy is well known to her, but such control and command must have taken many years of meditation and study to master. Turkey laughs aloud, and Lannery smiles sidelong at Dale. He's frowning. He didn't hear a thing. She is still stunned at the size and scope of Qigong. She's heard all about it, of course, from her parents, and from those journeyers venturing through Bodhi Temple after having visited Qigong previously on their travels. Their talk is always of the temple first, its incredible size, the complexity of its caverns and tunnels, the strength of the force in this natural nexus and then inevitably they will finish with stories of the silent desert. A haunting place, almost unnatural. She and Dale have already spent days crossing the desert to Qigong and encountering some of its dangers, but she senses that their real experience of those strange sands has only just begun. It's cool down here, Turkey says. Sometimes the sands are hot enough to melt your shoes, and the slightest breeze will blister your skin. But that's usually later in the day. 
Down here, we're protected from the sun, and the climate is controlled by six conditioners. There's one over there. They are crossing a wide cavern bounded on three sides with sheer walls, each of them speckled with ledges and stairwells, people bustling all about. Turkey points at the fourth side of the plaza, and there stands a huge machine, the height of thirty people, with curved protuberances that flex and bulge like something biological, not mechanical. It steams, groans, and moisture speckles its surface and pools around its base. That's a machine? Dale asks. Of sorts, Turkey sends. He glances at Lannery, raises an eyebrow, then speaks the words aloud. He expects Dale to be hearing all this, Lannery thinks. Her brother seems unaware, and wrapped as he is with the giant conditioner. Of sorts? Lannery asks. Many of its inner workings are grown at Anil Kesh. So it's alive? Far from it. Turkey turns and strides across the cavern floor, and they have to hurry to catch up. When we reach the surface, all will fall silent, Turkey says in Lannery's mind. But silence is subjective. You and I can communicate as we are now, and this is the first lesson. Forced telepathy is a talent that some journeyers already have when they arrive here, but those who don't pick it up quite quickly. He glances back over his shoulder at her, grim-faced. It's a fundamental talent, not like Farsight, we're using the Force to cast illusion. If you flow with the Force, then so can your words and thoughts. But your brother... He shrugs as they continue walking. He's... Lannery begins, but Dale looks at her. She coughs, pretending to have swallowed some dust. Then she tries to speak without words. Her mother had taught her the basics. Sometimes her father touched her mind when it was late and they were tired, giving her a bedtime tale. Now was Lannery's chance to use those lessons. He's slow with the Force, she sends, and she knows that Master Turkey hears. But he wants to learn. No, Turkey says. I sense no eagerness in him, only resistance. No delight, only suspicion. He'll do his best. They reach the edge of the cavern, where a large opening in one wall leads to small, busier tunnels. Six-armed droids amble back and forth offering drinks. Taller droids provide physical care to a group of people who are dressed in grubby clothing, their skin sun-reddened, faces drawn, and eyes haunted. They don't stop talking, as if it's a novelty. Lannery suspects these are journeyer students having just finished another surface lesson. If he will do his best, then so will I, Turkey says, but Lannery already hears his doubt. It seems to echo her own. Master Turkey speaks then, including them both. The main climb to the surface. There are elevators and rising tubes, but I like my students to walk. Physical exercise. He thumps his chest and laughs. Good for the lungs, the heart. And he strokes his forehead. The health of the body feeds the health of the mind. They start climbing the naturally formed stairway. Lannery counts more than a thousand steps. Their first evening, as the sun blazes red across the western desert and the sands come alive with scorpions and serpents and other shadowy things, Lannery forces an illusion before Master Turkey. A shire with graceful veined wings and a single horn protruding from its head dances in the sand, beating its hooves against shadows that do not notice, snorting, and she hears every beat and breath. Turkey smiles at the solo horn that prances before him, and he nods once at Lannery. Good work, he speaks silently. But you'll find that making an illusion of reality that much harder. You know the Solocorn is a creature of myth, rich in your mind, and so an illusion is easy to form. Try something more mundane. A rock, a fruit, a shoe. Not so easy. 
Lannery lets the illusion flitter away in the dusk and does as Turquay suggests. She cannot do it. Your lessons have only just begun, Turquay says. He turns away from her and sits close to Dale, holding the boy's hands in his own, touching his cheeks and his temples, and then the master closes his eyes, and Dale's own eyes grow wide. He hears him, Lannery thinks, delighted. He feels the force and hears with it, but her excitement is short-lived. Dale stands and kicks at the sand, sending it spraying into Master Turquay's face. He reacts like he has been invaded or touched by something disgusting. Then he turns and walks away into the twilight. Lannery wishes she could call her brother back. Their first dawn camped in the silent desert with Master Turquay is one of the strangest times of Lannery's life. Camping with Dale on their way here had been nothing like this. They were times of fear and worry, not wonder. Perhaps being so close to the temple, a natural nexus of the Force, drew life to that place. As the rising sun sets the eastern horizon aflame, the desert comes to life, and the silence seems more staggering than ever before. Night creatures have already gone to ground an hour before dawn, as if aware that sunlight will soon expose them. Shadows retreat, the coolness of the night is burned away, and shimmering heat haze dances across the sands. Desert birds take flight from wherever they sleep. A small species of shire, thinner than those elsewhere on Tython, with water humps on back and neck, moves in herds across a distant hillside. Lizards frolic and dance around rocky areas. Gliding pendles flap their mighty wings as they ride the dawn air currents, and she sees a giant mankle stalking in the distance, its vicious spines raised for the hunt. Yet this magnificent display of life and diversity exists in the desert's unnatural silence, the cries and calls, the flapping of wings, the growls and roars of the hunt, all unheard. There, toward the hills, look, blink and you might miss it. She was not even aware that Turkey had risen. His tent looks undisturbed, untouched. Yet as he speaks in her mind, she sees him hunkered down south of the camp, as motionless as the rock pile beside which he sits. She looks where he said, and sees. There seems to be no wind lifting the sand, no disturbance in the ground that might raise such a thing. The sculpture looks about the size of a human, though distance can be deceptive. It seems fluid, moving and dancing as the billions of sand particles within constantly shift and flow. The shape is ambiguous. Dale should see this, Lannery thinks. Yet she knows she cannot wake him with a thought, and to move him might break this moment. Reach, Tirkay says, and Lannery reaches. The force is alive within her, and she probes outward with her senses. Feeling that distant sand sculpture is slightly warmer than the surrounding sand, its smell is like something long buried exposed at last. And most amazingly of all, within its confines, the sand sings out loud. The sound is confused and seems to make no sense. There are no words there that Lannery knows, yet she can sense something of unbridled freedom and passion in the noise. And for a few beats of her heart, she is filled with a blazing optimism that puts the sun to shame. Then the shape disintegrates, and with one more heartbeat it is returned to the desert. The sound has vanished. The movement has ceased. Lannery is left breathing hard with excitement, and as she glances across at Turkey, she catches his smile. What is that? A mystery. You should wake your brother. Your training starts again now. They spend the rest of that day and the two following, training in the silent desert. Lannery is delighted with the talents she possesses and those she is introduced to, and thrilled at how adept she already seems. Turkey pushes her, tests, and she performs. 
pushing back with silent requests for harder tasks, more complex problems. Her relationship with the Force expands rapidly in that silent place, and she feels fully a part of it for the first time. Suggestion, telepathy, control. Her skills grow and expand with each passing moment. She enjoys her time there with Master Turkey. And yet many times she realizes the strength of her pride when she forgets that Dale is not finding any of this easy. He cannot flow with the Force, and the more Turkey works with him, the less Dale wants to try. Lannery becomes frustrated and annoyed with his frequent displays of petulance. In the evenings, when they are eating and relaxing, she tries communicating with him. A sisterly touch on his mind, born of love and concern. Yet she's met with a deluge of chaotic thoughts, frightening, furious, and yet scared. As dusk falls on the third day and they make their way back to the temple, Lannery is enlivened by her successes and saddened by Dale's failures. She takes his hand, surprised when he holds on, and she smiles at him. She has an idea. A subtle push, and they are walking along the river back at home, close to Bodhi Temple. This is the one place where Dale feels most at peace with himself. Weave birds have been here recently, and countless golden threads are carried on the breeze. The river flows fast and heavy, swollen by recent rains in the hills of the Edge Forest. The air smells of blossom and hangs heavy with the promise of a family meal that evening, when their father will cook rumbat stew and their mother will read some of her poetry. It is beautiful. It is false. Dale squeezes her hand so tightly that she feels bones grinding, and the hookhawk wounds start to bleed again. Then he crumples to his knees in the sand and vomits. Lannery kneels beside him, wondering if she has done wrong. He hates her touching his mind, using the Force to invade his thoughts. They have thought about it more than once. But after so long in this strange place, she'd thought that perhaps he would have welcomed those thoughts of safety and calm, those images of home. When he looks up at her, she sees the venom of his gaze. She cannot touch his mind again to say sorry. Okay, that was chapter three, and it reveals a lot of exciting things to us. All of the other races that have been around and been in the presence of the Jedi for a long time, the Wookiees, the Twi'leks, and the continued talk of Sith. But I think the most important part of this chapter is the power of the Force, and how much more powerful these Jedis are than the ones that we grew up on. They can use force telepathy, and they can use it well. We know that the Jedi could do it of our time period just because of Empire Strikes Back when Luke was able to call out to, you know, his sister Leia, you know, when he needed rescuing on Cloud City. But it was nowhere as powerful as these Jedi. They talk to each other like they're using normal words, like they could just hear each other and talk to each other without ever opening their mouths. And their ability to create force illusions that you would think was real and that could last for many, many years is very useful force ability. We know that Luke could do it too because in The Last Jedi, he was able to cast a force illusion of himself clear across the universe when he fought Kylo Ren and everybody seen him and everything. But then he went into the, into the force after that. We know that there's a lot of times that, you know, the force was being used. They could levitate stuff and things like that. But these Jedi were super powerful and they could do a lot of awesome stuff. And I can't wait to hear about more of the awesome stuff that they are able to do in Chapter 4. Thank you for listening to Sway. Join us next time for more Star Wars adventures. If you would like to listen to other episodes of the show, you can find us and subscribe on your favorite podcast directory. If you enjoyed the show, we would greatly appreciate a five-star review. Once again, thank you for listening and may the force be with you. 
Sway was created by Keen Eye Shit and is a production of Pick Film Media. This show was produced by Quentin McDaniel. Sound designed by Theodore Thompson. Research by Tammy Turner. I am your host, Kyle, and we will see you next time in a galaxy far, far away.